You're listening to Unpaused, a podcast for women who want to stage a career comeback or mastermind a new one after an extended break from work. I'm your host, Judy Stewart, and if you want to reclaim your career but don't know how, then this is the podcast for you. Let's meet our guest for today. The Walker family from Launceston produced not one, but two children with important international careers. Catherine, the third of four, rose in Australia's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade to become first assistant secretary, while her brother Tim, whom I interviewed in episode three of the podcast, went on to become CEO and artistic director of the London Philharmonic. All four children have achieved the heights in their own way, but today it is Catherine to whom I'm speaking, an interview I've wanted to do for a long time. Catherine is the most modest of success stories. Retired but by no means idle, I find her happily sequestered in an early Tasmanian farmhouse in picturesque Longford. But truth be told, it wasn't that long ago that she was being pulled in to lead Australia's humanitarian efforts in Dili, the Solomon Islands and Afghanistan. Witnessing heartbreaking famine at first hand in North Korea, which is unusual in itself for a woman, as Australia's Minister on the World Food Program, and meeting just about everyone who was anyone from the UN donor and aid web of life. Beneath all this, though, is the beating heart of a modern-day Georgian enthusiast, with an eye for what's exquisite, valuable and collectible. Like her siblings, she was drilled in the high domestic arts by her formidable mother and, with Tim, began collecting Georgian furniture and artefacts at a time when the old was routinely discarded in favour of the contemporary. Fifty or so years on, and that collection enlivens every room in her delightful house, less a museum than the cosiest, most beguiling of homes. We sat in her dining room amidst the prettiest and most precious of treasures as she readied the just as lovely garden for an open day and an expected 700 visitors in a few weeks' time. For this most domesticated of women, there is always a tray for tea set with exquisite cups, sauces and plates, and yes, there are homemade biscuits, a treat at the ready, always. I mention this because the juxtaposition of the domestic with a working life dedicated to easing acute physical distress and addressing famine, violence, and in some cases, the complete breakdown of every system which makes a society, economy, and judicial system function is nothing short of astounding. I want to explore both sides of Catherine's life and along the way extract what she's learnt from advising and managing not just her career, but the women she's recruited whose careers have had to stop and start while they live far, far away from home. Catherine, welcome to Unpaused. Judy, it's a pleasure to talk with you this morning. Thanks, Catherine. What is the role of humanitarian Australia in the region as you see it? Well, it's a very important role and it's one that uh, Australian governments have always placed a very high priority on. It's not just our responsibility to respond to countries facing natural disasters and other crises. It's also a responsibility to help these countries to develop economically and socially and to become prosperous and peaceful neighbours. Our geography is very special in the world of aid donors because we live 
with 20 of the 24 countries that surround us that are developing countries, and some of them are very fragile indeed. So Australia had developed during the time I worked in AusAid a particular way of managing development assistance in these very fragile states. And that made us a leader in the world because no other countries had to do it the way that we did it. And at the same time as we're trying to help with their humanitarian efforts, we are trying to put a platform under economic and social development so that these countries can truly prosper. A difficult task. But Catherine, the thing that intrigues me about your career is that it's very much feet on the ground, isn't it? You don't just rule it all from Canberra. You actually jump on a plane and often helicopters and boats and goodness knows what and sort of leap in there. Yes, that's true. But towards, I suppose, the last quarter of my career, I was doing less of the jumping on helicopters and more of the nation from, from Canberra which for our four countries in the Pacific was a truly kind of whole of government exercise. So that, you know, brought in the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, the Australian Defence Force, Emergency Management Australia, any government entity that had an interest in responding to humanitarian crises in the neighbourhood was part of that coordination theme for how Australia would assist. But of course, we did develop people in AusAid who could very quickly be deployed into these disaster areas and help to take charge of the distribution of aid and assistance, often through the Australian Defence Force providing their air assets so that people could get in quickly. I guess the places where I've, <laughs> I've jumped on more helicopters than anywhere else in East Timor and the role that I had there was very much a combination of uh, humanitarian assistance and longer-term development assistance. I've also travelled in Afghanistan, but within a very tight security bubble and in many parts of Africa as, as well as in many parts of the Pacific, but less of a role of being the on-the-ground on convener. I largely left that in my later career to, to people that we developed for that specific purpose. I suppose I've always had an interest in the aid program from my teenage years. And in fact, I was a supporter of Community Aid Abroad and other NGOs from, from an early age. I guess the opportunity arose to join the aid program when Neil Blewett became the Minister for Trade and Overseas Development. And I was fortunate enough to be asked to stay on in his office, even though I had previously been working on social policy, particularly in relation to childcare, when he was Minister for Community Services and Health. But there was an opportunity to move into a job that I felt suited me, and that was public affairs and development education. The public affairs part of my first job in AusAid, I'd seen the way that Australia's official aid program was represented in the Australian media while I worked at Parliament House. And there were generally negative stories. I mean, there's a lot that can go wrong in providing aid to very poor countries, countries that are very much challenged by their own governance. And I didn't think that the aid program had a very positive press and it certainly didn't have a very large presence in the media. Only when disaster struck, that's the time when you hear most about the aid program or when, you know, there are allegations of fraud or mismanagement 
or mismanagement of aid. So I thought in that public affairs role that I might be able to help change things around. And the other aspect of the first role I had, development education, was really about providing teachers across Australia with curriculum materials that would help them discuss the sorts of issues that were developing countries were facing with their students. And it was a really successful program in global education, actually, which involved a lot of teachers and a lot of curriculum development. So I translated, so I say, from Parliament House into ADAB, as it was then called, the Australian International Development Assistance Bureau, in a role that I thought I could build on. And from there, I became the director of the humanitarian relief section. That was principally because so much of the media attention, as I've said, was focused on humanitarian crises that I visited Rwanda, for example. I visited other natural disaster situations. I was part of a group of OECD donor countries, directors of public information, public affairs and global education. And so I'd learned a lot about the representation of humanitarian crises in the media. And I took on that job and that really was the beginning of my longer term career interest in humanitarian relief and in fragile and conflict-affected states. Did you feel like you were making progress in your career or did the episodic nature of your career hold you back? No, I don't think that was the case. Looking back, I can see that the choices that I made meant that each new role, I had some experience and some knowledge of what to expect from the next role I took on. So, for example, from being Director of Humanitarian Relief in Canberra, I was lucky enough to be posted to Rome as our Councillor Development Corporation, and that was really my first exposure to the UN's humanitarian system, which is enormous, largely through the World Food Programme, where Australia had been a top 10 donor for many years. So I'd already had a lot to do with WFP and with the way they operated as the Director of Humanitarian Relief. The new role as a Councillor Development Cooperation meant that I was representing the Australian Government in the Executive Board of the World Food Programme. And so that was a different represented role, but Australia had a big interest in the way WFP was conducting its operations, the way it was financed, its effectiveness, its overall efficiency as the largest food aid provider in the world and so on. So that knowledge of the way WFP worked as a leading humanitarian organisation meant that the subsequent roles that I took on, including as First Assistant Secretary of Humanitarian and Stabilisation, I think that was the title of my last role before I retired, I think that meant that I brought a lot of experience. And, and and I I see it as kind of stepping stones, building on experience. Mm. Mm. If you look back on one particular role that was really critical to your advancement and one role that, that really took everything that you had to give to do it well, which role in all of those crises really stands out for you? Probably the, the role I took on in East Timor, which was as the Chief of Donor Coordination in the Office of the Special Representative and Secretary-General. At the time I took on the role, I think I arrived on Valentine's Day in 2000 and I left I left Dili shortly after independence in, in June 2000 and 
too. East Timor was still recovering from a humanitarian emergency, so there were still large elements of the humanitarian infrastructure there because the Indonesian withdrawal from Timor had well, left enormous destruction in its wake. And the crisis was sparked by the popular ballot held in August 1999, which basically set up East Timor's independence from Indonesia. And conflict ensued because there were militia groups of Timorese that were supported by the Indonesian government and the Indonesian army was present in Dili. And as they left the country following the popular ballot, they basically destroyed much of the infrastructure as they retreated. And that included schools and hospitals and churches. They rioted and there was just a complete breakdown of everything. Yes, there was a breakdown. I, I mean, I wasn't in Dili at the time. The UN had a heavy presence there because they were monitoring the election. Many Australians will remember that Major General Peter Cosgrove then led the Australian Defence Force through Intervet into East Timor to restore peace and to negotiate, I suppose, the peaceful exit of the Indonesian army. And that was largely accomplished and Interfet was then stood down and there was another military force sponsored by the UN took over the responsibility for maintaining law and order. But the Timorese people were heavily traumatised by what happened in that period after the ballot and really their ability to manage anything was severely constrained. I mean, the country had been torched, their crops destroyed, people had been killed. There were some shocking, shocking atrocities. And they're resourceful people, but really they had, they had very few resources left to, to help them through that crisis. All of this was being seen on television screens around the world. And Timor is often referred to as a popular emergency. I mean, there was a big story behind the way someone like Jose, Jose Ramos Horta, for example, knocked on doors of politicians all over the world and kept the flame of East Timor's desire for independence alive. And many, many countries wanted to help them through this crisis. And of course, Australia was one, and not just because of our proximity, but that was a key factor in being able to launch from Darwin in particular, a humanitarian that basically kept people alive by getting food to them where they were hiding in the hills, still many of them. And as Interfet restored peace and stability. Of course, they were able to move back to what was left of their homes. But that humanitarian phase of having to keep people alive lasted, I would say, about six months because the development players, the donor countries who wanted to help build Timor as a new, newly independent nation, then put their finances quite quickly together. And it's probably one of the more successful transitions from humanitarian assistance to longer-term development aid that I've seen. But the challenge was it was the biggest state-building exercise the UN has ever been involved in. The whole organisational structure and administrative structure had to be built from the ground up. And the entire health system, the education system, the way government operated, all of that had to be built again. Timor as a country is very beautiful and it really is an amazing place, very mountainous. There's some very interesting remnants of the Portuguese administration that 
remain in the mountainous regions, you know, guest houses, posadas that have been renovated and provided some kind of weekend respite for people. Yeah. But mostly UN people were either accommodated in hotels or managed to rent and renovate some local Timorese houses. And Catherine, you have a very beautiful collection of baskets there at home, which I've admired on different occasions. Just tell me about how, because the baskets are different from a lot of the other things you've collected. They're much more rustic. Just tell me the story of the baskets and what they meant to you when you were posted away in these remote and exotic places. Well, I've always liked baskets. (laughs) I suppose they provide a connection with the people who are making them. And very often it's women. And it provides a point of communication, of conversation, when you see women making baskets. And I was interested in the fact that there are usually two kinds of baskets that are made in many countries. They're the entirely utilitarian, the ones for carrying the vegetables to market and so on. And then there are the more decorative, the ones that are worn for occasions. And in Timor, you could see both. The utilitarian ones I actually found more interesting and more beautifully woven than perhaps the decorative ones that were also very fine but were coloured, were dyed. And I liked the more rustic utilitarian baskets. And similarly in the Solomon Islands, they have a great tradition of basket weaving from the island of Booker, which is part of Bougainville, called Booker Basket. And interestingly, it's the men who make the Booker Baskets because they need to be very, very strong to to manage the weaving. And these baskets are really tightly woven. And they're also utilitarian, but be more decorative and probably more for the visitor trade. And they're highly collectible. Some of these early booker baskets from Papua New Guinea also has a tradition in making the same style of basket. Some of them are very collectible and feature in museum exhibitions. And so you've collected these baskets from all these different postings. Did you just always, wherever you were, have you got somewhere, something from every posting? Probably, if I thought about it, probably. Not, or, or visit, should I say. But not from Afghanistan, but certainly from parts of Africa. Zimbabwe has made the most beautiful baskets. And also Ethiopia, I went to visit a small organisation called the Gemini Trust, which looked after women who had delivered twins. It was an organisation that was supported by the World Food Programme with nutritional food because in Ethiopia, many times the second baby will not survive. But if a woman knows she's having twins, she can seek help from organisations like the Gemini Trust. She will get help to deliver the babies and then to make sure that they're, they're nurtured and can thrive. And they had the most beautiful baskets. That was part of the thing that they did. And they had a little shop and they sold them to people like me. So I always felt that there was a connection there that you could make with people who were making things both to use and also to give themselves some income. And I suppose you were putting currency into their little local economy as well, which would have been a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. I also understood that you'd make a little tableau in your hotel room or where you were living. I mean, if you were in Dili for two years, that's a long time. Like, you'd want to make it feel like home. Yes. Well, it was a limited furniture. But I did buy I did buy a few things and I did <laughs> arrange them. <laughs> I did arrange them and I moved them around. <laughs> I mean, they gave me a lot of pleasure, as they do in my own home now. 
The other thing that I collected in Timor, or two other things actually, was a beautiful textile, Taia, T-A-I-S. It's uh, just astonishingly clever weaving, hand-loomed weaving. And there was a special Taia market in Dili, and that was definitely a way of helping to put money into the local economy because most visitors to Timor would take home a piece of Tyus with them. And the other collectible was a lovely or interesting pottery. And it's very, very fine and it's very utilitarian, lots of bowls of different shapes, but it's wood fired on the beaches in these little pyres, they look like little pyres, and out comes these, you know, beautiful big pots still with their charcoal, you know, blackness on the underside. I found those very, um, very interesting and very, very beautiful to look at. And also a lot of washed glass on the beaches and interesting stones and shells. So, yes, the tableaus came as a result. (laughs) Yeah, and I suppose that helped you sort of cope with the enormity of the situation you were facing. Yes, I mean, I guess also having uh, at least one day off at the weekend where you could get out of Dilly and, you know, walk along the beach or or walk in the hills and just, you know, have have a sense of peace and calm because Dilly, the environment was really frenetic. In my unit, I managed a lot of visits from international donors who wanted to get the first-hand knowledge of how they should be providing their aid money and where the gaps were and where they could have the most value. So uh, typically my days were very back-to-back meetings and we worked late hours and we certainly in the first 12 months worked six days a week. So it was pretty full on. And Catherine, I just want to just touch for a moment on the danger because it's not really understood that sometimes good works attracted the attention of hostile actors But let me go back to your mother, Mrs Walker, and the interest that she sparked in both you and Tim in all things Georgian because it's just the most fascinating juxtaposition. You're both very astute collectors and it goes well beyond baskets, you know, rooms and rooms full of furniture and cups and saucers (laughs) and beautiful cabinets. Tell me about your mother and how this great interest in Georgian things was first stirred? Well, we certainly got our love of old things from mum. She developed that very early in her life. She used to like going to antique fairs and she was very much involved with the National Trust, particularly Franklin House, lovely Georgian house here in Launceston. So she had a lifelong interest. She wasn't especially a collector of Georgian furniture or objects, but she loved Georgian England, particularly Bath and Stamford and the beautiful Georgian hearts of some of the towns and villages that we spent time in. So she did have a real appreciation for the Georgian style of architecture and the sort of restrained simplicity of it and the beautiful stone and the fan lights over the panelled front doors and so on. But for her own collection, it was things that she had bought in her early married life and that stood the test of time, that Mm. stayed with her for all her life. But Tasmania is a little Georgian jewel, isn't it? Why is there such an incredible amount of interesting and beautiful Georgian material there in Tasmania? Well, I think it goes back to the settlement times. I mean, Hobart settled very early in 1804. And from the people who came out to settle Tasmania, 
both as convicts and as free settlers who were given large tracts of farmland and who then looked at what sort of house they wanted to build for themselves and what sort of garden and turned in particular to the convict tradespeople, the stonemasons who could build, the carpenters, the joiners, people who could build houses for them. And, of course, the architects who could design you know, the, the Georgian style of housing for them. So I think, I mean, it's very much a transplanted style, but there were in Tasmania the architects and the collection of artisans and then the people who had brought wealth with them or who gained wealth by being given these large tracts of land who then built these beautiful houses. Mm, and then filled them and, with beautiful yeah. things. But how have they remained well, intact why in Tasmania well, is it still, you know, they haven't been bulldozed over and been looked after? Well, I think that owes a lot to the private ownership of these beautiful places. I think the private owners have kept and maintained their ways that, you know, if they had fallen out of private ownership, the National Trust and the government could not have afforded the upkeep required, the cost mm. of maintenance on some of these buildings because the National Trust is struggling to maintain the the maintenance of the 10 assets that it has in Tasmania. So I think there are listed houses and buildings in the hands of about 5,000 private owners in Tasmania. Mm. So we owe a lot to them. There are certainly photographs of buildings beautiful barns and other you know, office-style buildings that have been bulldozed. And I think that when the National Trust was formed, Tasmania, in 1960, it really started the advocacy for maintaining and conserving the colonial heritage that Tasmania has. And, Catherine, it's not surprising that you are on the National Trust. In fact, you're the Deputy Chair. Of yes, 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 yes. I've always been interested in National Trust and I've enjoyed visiting National Trust properties here and in the UK. And I thought that I could contribute something to the board of the trust. And I've been on it for three years and I have another three-year term. And it's certainly been an interesting and challenging job, hmm. particularly post-COVID. Yes. Catherine, if I just go back to when you retired, am I right in thinking that your retirement coincided with the move by the Abbott government to merge AusAid into the larger Foreign Affairs and Trade Department and that that meant big budget cuts and a large exodus of people like you with a lot of experience? If that's correct, tell me what was the exit and the transition like? Well, when that merger was announced, by the Abbott government, I was actually on long service leave, the second period of long service leave I had in my career. And so I didn't immediately experience a lot of the anxiety that my colleagues in Aussie were going through. And when I re returned to the organisation, I could see that was really a momentous change for 
the majority of AusAid employees. And it's a change that wasn't very well explained to people. So still people muse on why, you know, it was one of the first things that the Prime Minister Abbott decided to do after the election. Anyway, there was definitely a difficult transition period. Whenever you merge departments, or of government, there is generally a period where it's pretty rocky. And certainly, although AusAid was part of the foreign affairs and trade portfolio and very much enmeshed, I had many contacts in foreign affairs and I had a lot to do with people who worked in foreign affairs. It was certainly a different culture from the culture in AusAid. And, you know, mergers provide, they provide opportunities for people and in some cases, the opportunities that you thought were there no longer exist. So the immediate issue was that some people had to leave because there was insufficient budget to keep the same level of staff. And I think I think close to around 500 people left, not all people from Australia, but left the foreign affairs and trade portfolio over a relatively short period of time. But that really wasn't the reason why I left. I wanted to support my father in his final year and I thought that it was time to come home to Tasmania and to be with John, my husband, who had already retired, and also to be a support to Dad. So that was my real motivation. Right. I do just want to mention John. So you married John when you were 50, so it was a late life romance. Do you think that it was just too hard to have a personal life in a role like that? And how do you sort of advise other women about having a life? Well, I always thought that if the relationship came along, I could give up my career and do something entirely different. But the longer I lived on my own, I suppose some of the options that you might have had in your younger life, you know, were no longer there. And my career was very important to me. But I also think that personal relationships and the possibility of family life and, you know, developing interests and hobbies outside your working life are really important. And I mean, I feel enormous good fortune that I met John in the Solomon Islands, but that was really completely out of the blue. And and we've had a really, really good life since then, so I feel really fortunate. But I have provided advice to quite a lot of younger women who worked with me about their options. And, of course, in this aid world and foreign affairs world, you have these wonderful opportunities to, to go on posting and to live in a country for three to four years, some of them quite quite difficult environments. But that does represent a kind of, I suppose it can be exciting, but it can also be anxiety-making for people who think, well, if I take this choice, am I going to not have an opportunity to meet somebody and to have children? Can I make it all happen? And in some cases, of course, you can. You can have these fantastic postings and you can have a family and you can do it. You can do it all. But I've always said to people that living overseas, in, it, it, it's incredibly interesting and rewarding. But you do have to take account of where you are in your life journey. And I just advise people to think about their personal and family circumstances and whether the timing is right for them to take on that sort of posting. And I've 
I've equally said some people get anxious about being away from head office for three or four years. And I've also said to many that you shouldn't feel anxious about these kind of periods that you're away from the mothership, if you like, because you're building your experience and you're building your networks. And people often comment that these overseas postings really have been the best part of their career, the most enjoyable, the time when they've really forged close relationships and felt that they were doing something really important and serious for the development of another country. So I think, I mean, you always have choices as you're building a career. And I have certainly agonised over many choices that I've had. But I can honestly say that I haven't regretted any of the ones that I've made. and. I feel very fortunate from from that point of view. I think that you should always seek out the views and the advice of people you trust and people you admire in your organisation. And in my experience, more senior people are only too happy to give advice in terms of the impact on your career or the, the possibilities that have opened that, you know, taking a posting, for example, or taking a career step can open up for you. But yeah, I would just add again that you have to think about your own personal situation and really work out whether it's the right step for you. I've also tried to advise women in particular not to be anxious about coming back to work after they've had children or after they've had a prolonged break. That, you know, gaps in your career are very standard now and not something to be worried about. You can very quickly get back into the groove, in my experience, through a range of mechanisms, including, of course, working part-time. And the other thing that's occurred to me as I'm, as I'm thinking about this is that there's also women feel anxious about not advancing quickly enough, not being promoted quickly enough. And I've also tried to advise people that you need a bit of luck to be promoted, particularly in my sort of world of the public service, an element of luck in it. There are obviously a lot of people going for the same position. And it's not always, you know, there's a tendency for people to want to know exactly why they might have missed out on a promotion. And that can be quite a challenge for the person providing feedback because sometimes it's, there were people who were just better than you. And or you weren't quite mm. the pea in the pod for this job. So the specific mm. feedback is a bit difficult to give. But I just advise people to hang in there. There is an element of luck. And once you're promoted, I've seen people advance quite quickly through the ranks because they've made the step up, they've done well, and they've been recognised, and then their advancement takes off from there. Mm. Oh, Catherine, it's been a spectacular career. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. I've enjoyed it too. There's a history lesson in this interview, but let me focus on the advice that Catherine shares along the way, as it's not every day you get to hear from such a senior government official speaking informally. The first thing I'd like to concentrate on is the contrast between the work Catherine did as Australia's Coordinator of Humanitarian Assistance and the things she did to keep herself personally grounded in the field. Both mattered. Inspired by a lifelong love of precious things, she sought out the women who made the baskets in the village and through them, the collector at heart she truly is, found pleasure and a connection with the local community. 
arranging these treasures and then rearranging them into small tableau in her quarters, she created ballast for a job that must have had its heartbreaks, as well as danger. Those simple and often exquisite acquisitions, the gift for making which stretched right back into her childhood, helped her to establish order in the chaos that surrounded her. The second thing is how reassuring it is to hear Catherine say that gaps in a women's career are more normal now and that the system is moving to accommodate them. May I commend revisiting the last quarter of the interview for all her wisdom. She herself comes down in favour of weighing a personal life and the possibility of family life against every career opportunity, valuable as each might be. She says quite openly she's agonised over many of her own career decisions. Catherine is an advertisement for having a mentor from whom to take soundings on the big career questions, and she advocates for this. No doubt she herself sought advice on the way up, as the decisions to leave home and move to war-torn and famine-ravaged places can't have been easy ones to make. But on the biggest question of having it all, it looks like she comes down where former US Secretary of State Madeleine Albright came down too. You can have it all, just not all at the same time. Catherine's not bitter about Australia's back and forth on international aid in the Pacific, but instead quietly proud of her work on Australia's behalf. There must be a book in there somewhere. Thanks to Leonie Marsh for producing this episode and Jason Milhouse in the studio. Until next time, farewell. <laughs>